All right, Friday night, how are you tonight? It is good to see you. It is good to be back here. I was listening to you sing and thinking to myself, man, there is no congregation on planet Earth like New Life Friday night for how they worship. It is unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's good to be here uh, tonight. Uh, as Pastor Daniel said, my name, if you're new, my name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor of New Life East, was on staff here for a number of years, and it's just good to be back here Tonight, we are talking about sex tonight. Yes, got that out of the way. What a way to start a message. Talking about finding true love, the Bible's vision for our sexuality. Eugene Peterson, in this series that we're in the midst of here called How Do I, series through the book of Proverbs, what we're doing is we're wrestling with the wisdom of Proverbs as it relates to various uh, things that we go through in our lives. And The great Eugene Peterson had a wonderful definition for wisdom. When we think about the book of Proverbs, Proverbs is part of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And Eugene Peterson said this about wisdom. He said that wisdom is the art of living skillfully in whatever situation we find ourselves. Wisdom is the art of living skillfully in whatever situation we find ourselves. And how many of you know our sexuality just is a situation? It really is. There's just so much confusion and so much hurt and pain and brokenness. And I think about our country in the 60s and the 70s. We went through something known as the sexual revolution, where we basically said that all the old standards for our sexuality were no longer relevant. And so we threw all of that stuff off. We said that the church's way of thinking about sexuality was oppressive and it was dogmatic And it squelched life and didn't release life. And so we broke all of the chains, the yokes off. And here we are 50 years later. And I'm not sure that our sexuality is better for it. I think that we're just in a huge mess. And I think that it's high time. As the people of God, we went back into the scriptures and we listened to the wisdom of the scripture around this, which is one of the most important and personal areas of our lives. And as it turns out, Proverbs has a great deal to say to give us a healthful vision for our sexuality. So tonight, if you have Bibles, I'm going to be in Proverbs chapter 5. We're going to read the whole thing, and I'm going to use that really as a doorway. We're going to start in Proverbs, and then I'm going to go to a couple different places. We're going to use that as a doorway, really, for thinking about what the Scripture teaches about the power and the beauty, and also the potential for pain in our sexuality, and how God wants to redeem it and cleanse it and Heal it. And so now, Lord, we make ourselves present to you. For you have been present to us every moment of our lives. And so we become present to you in this moment. And we slow down. It's the end of the week. We don't need to rush through anything. And so we're thanking you in this moment for the very gift of life itself. We're thanking you that we have breath in our lungs. We thank you that we have eyes to see and ears to hear, uh, minds to understand, hearts to love, hands to serve. We're grateful that we're surrounded by friends in this place. We're thankful that we're safe here. It's good to be safe among God's people. We're thankful for that. We're thankful for this space where we can come and just learn wisdom and wrestle. We're thankful. We're thankful for the gift of your presence. You made it so that we're not like the beasts. We have an awareness of God, and what a thing that is, to be able to drink in the presence of God and access God and interact with God. What a thing. And so we just say thank you tonight. We're asking, Lord Jesus, Son of the living God, word made flesh. We're asking that you would come and take the words of Scripture, and we're asking that you would take the words of the preacher and somehow pull them together so that they become your living word to us In this moment, this night, this evening, we pray that your grace and your peace and your love and your hope would radiate in everything that we say and do tonight in these next minutes together. I'm asking, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 1, the writer of Proverbs says, My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ear to my words of insight that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. 
For the lips of an adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, and her steps lead straight to the grave. She doesn't give any thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she doesn't know it. So now that my sons listen to me, don't turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Don't go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. And at the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and your body are spent. You will say how I hated discipline and how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or listen to my instructors, and I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. So the writer of Proverbs says, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. And may your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you be ever intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sin hold them fast. For lack of discipline, everybody say discipline. For lack of discipline, they will die, led astray by their own great folly. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said... Thanks be to God, and amen. I'll take an amen over there. I appreciate that. The writer of Proverbs is aware, I think, of at least two things about our sexuality which come through in a really powerful way in this passage. Uh, number one, the writer of Proverbs is aware of the beauty and the power of our sexuality, the beauty and the power of our sexuality. I love this line here, drink water. Everybody say water. This is in verse 15. Water from your own cistern running water from your own well. In the scriptures, water is always a metaphor uh, for the life of God. And when we think about our sexuality, it has beauty and it has power for life. Mandy and I are going on 21 years of being married. And uh, I think that maybe the most obvious evidence of the power for life that is our sexuality is our four beautiful kids, Ethan, Gabe, Bella, and Liam. And they are evidences of the power of our sexuality. These creatures that somehow God has made through this act, but it's not just about children that result from it. When I think about 21 years of being married, I also think about the way in which our sexual relationship, Mandy and I, is a refuge and a shelter, and it's also a place of refreshing. There's beauty and there's power in it, and that's nothing to be embarrassed of, right? But God gave that. God designed that for our good, and the writer of Proverbs is aware of that, that this thing is a great and a precious gift of God. But the writer of Proverbs is also aware of a second thing to do with our sexuality. Uh, he's aware of its potential for suffering and for anguish. Think about the language that he uses here in this passage. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and your body are spent. You'll say how I hated discipline and my heart spurned correction. I wouldn't obey my teachers or my ear to my instructors. And I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. For as many ways as our sexuality can go right and be a blessing, it also can go profoundly wrong. And when it goes wrong, it impacts life. It degrades life. It diminishes life. And I'm just guessing that there's not a single person in this room tonight that hasn't been in some way touched by the degrading of our sexuality or by broken sexuality or the misuse of our sexuality in some way. We've all been touched by it, by addiction, by infidelity, by mistakes that people have made, by things that maybe we've done or things that have been done to us. And the writer of Proverbs is very well aware of that. And I think that this passage of scripture is a really brilliant doorway really into the whole biblical vision for our sexuality. And I would summarize that vision by saying this, that the Bible knows that our sexuality is an immense power for blessing or for curse, and therefore it must be rigorously disciplined. Everybody say rigorously disciplined. It's got to be rigorously disciplined because of its power, because of its beauty, because of its potential. It must be rigorously disciplined if it is to flourish as God intends, because it's a powerful 
thing. You say, well, what is it that makes for the power of our sexuality? Let's stop and just think about that for a second. When you think about the Bible's vision for human sexuality, really it doesn't start in Proverbs, but it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Think about that great passage in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. The scripture says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27, and so God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, what? Male and female, he created them. And then what did God do? He blessed them. You know, Walter Brueggemann, great Old Testament scholar, says about God's blessing. He says that blessing is power for life released. In our culture, we think of blessing as just empty words. You know, have a nice day, right? But to the biblical imagination, blessing is much more than that. Blessing is the power of God that's actually invested in life. And so he blesses them and he says to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living thing that moves along the ground. Now, I think that this passage gives us at least two reasons why our sexuality is such a driving factor of our lives, why it's so powerful. In the first place, think about this for a second. But God actually invests his own power for life in our sexuality, in our bodies. And he didn't have to do it that way, did he? When you think about how human life, how God could have set things up, he could have set it up so that human life always just kind of continued via a miracle, you know? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and God just kind of, boom, that happened, right? Well, it could have been that God decided to do it that way all the time. That whenever we needed new human beings, it would be, then God said, let there be a baby. Boom, like that, right? And there's a, then it happens, divine fiat, you know? A miracle. That's how he could have done it. And everything in our world is like this. You know, if we needed more apples, right? It could have been, let there be apples. Boom, and there's more apples, you know? If we need more cheese or something, let there be cows. And there are, right? And he just, but in a stroke of genius, I think what God does, think about this, is God actually embeds the miracle in the created order itself, okay? So what he does, what the creator of life itself does, is he writes the miracle of life into our bodies. So it's his own power that's actually written into our DNA. That makes our sexuality a very potent force, doesn't it? The other thing I think of this text here, the text of Genesis does for us, is it shows us that it's not just about the power for life, but it's about our desire to be in relationship with other creatures. Think about this, that when God decides to create, the scripture doesn't say, then God said, let me make human beings in my image and my likeness, but what does it say? It says, let us create human beings in, I need you to talk back to me just a little bit more tonight, our image, right? And our likeness and let them rule. And then he created them, mankind, what? Male and female, he created them. In the Christian imagination, we say that God is not just a solitary being floating up in the cosmos, right? But we say that God is what? He's Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God always exists in a plurality of persons that are indissolubly united. They have union with each other. So that when he creates human beings in his image and his likeness, he makes them for deep union. He makes them to be coupled with one another. So we have not only the power for life that's invested in our bodies, but we also have this profound spiritual and psychological urge to be coupled with other human beings or another human being. Those two things together are very powerful, aren't they? They're very powerful. And what the Bible knows then is that if those things are gonna go right, they have to be stewarded well. And our culture has no concept of this whatsoever, does it? What our culture basically does with our sexuality, and I think it's paradoxical, but when you think about it, it makes sense. I think that our culture, on the one hand, it exalts our sexuality all out of proportion, right? It worships our sexuality and says that we should just be free to 
express ourselves and do whatever we want and experiment however we want and all of that. So on the one hand, it like exalts our sexuality. But in that very act of exalting our sexuality, do you know what I think our culture actually winds up doing in the process? It degrades it. It actually trivializes it. It makes it less of a mystery, less of a beauty than it should be. I think about uh, years ago when Mandy and I were dating, we Gosh, 24 or so years ago, I think we started dating. It's been a minute, almost a quarter century, babe. Well done. We're off to a good start. Mandy and I were dating. We were in our first year dating, I I think, and I was a senior in high school. And uh, I went to public high school. And I remember being in choir class uh, one day and uh, sitting next to this guy who had become a good friend of mine. We sat next to each other every day. He had assigned seats in choir class. And the guy that I sat next to was a guy named Ben Baltus. And Ben, if you're listening to this, I love you and I miss you. You're a great guy. Ben Baltus is sitting right next to me. And we were rehearsing uh, Handel's Messiah. Hallelujah, 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 right? And in the midst of that, Ben and I are in this conversation. And somehow it came up that Mandy and I had made the decision in our first year of dating that we weren't going to kiss. It's a little homeschooly, but it worked for us, okay? And I'm not, if you're in homeschool, I'm not. It's just, I'm not. I'm, okay, it's just, Sorry. But it was sweet, and it was pure, and it was innocent. It was a way of us putting up guardrails around our relationship, honoring, right? Honoring our bodies and honoring the God that gave us our bodies, just wanting to do things right. And somehow that came up in my conversation with Ben Baltus, and Ben looked at me with this look that was like, what? Like, are you psychologically broken? Like, and he, so as we're like, you know, the tenors and the altos and all of that are trying to figure out Handel's Messiah, Ben is like incredulous with me. He's like, you're not, you're not kissing? So you're not, you're not having, you're not having sex either? He's like, I, how, how do you know if you love this woman, you know? And at this point, he's like, literally, he's like yelling at me in the middle of choir classes. Everybody's trying to, you know, rehearsing the Messiah and all of that. And I've just, Ben, just shut up, you know? But what so struck me about it, and I've carried this for all these years, what so struck me about it was how odd I seemed to him for that act of trying to honor my sexuality and the sexuality of the woman that, who would later become my, my wife, that was like a strange thing. In the, in the culture, we just have no concept of this whatsoever. And so we're constantly then degrading our sexuality and we're making less of it than God would have it be. In this regard, I think about the quote of the great Wendell Berry. He said it like this in one of his essays. He said, in this cult of liberated sexuality, he's taking this sexual revolution stuff and he's really putting it on trial He says, in this cult of liberated sexuality, free of courtesy, ceremony, responsibility, and restraint, dependent on litigation and expert advice, there is much that is human, he says, sad to say, but there is no sense or sanity. And then he says this, trying to draw the line where we are trying to draw it in our culture between carelessness and brutality is like insisting that falling is flying until you hit the ground and then trying to outlaw hitting the ground. It's not so easy to make a distinction between carelessness with respect to our sexuality and brutality, things that actually hurt us. So what the biblical imagination is trying to do is it's trying to equip us with the resources that we need to live our sexualized lives wisely. I put it this way, God is not trying to hurt us. Can I get an amen in the house tonight? He's not trying to hurt us. And sometimes that is the way that we think about the rules of scripture and the norms of scripture around our sexuality. We just think that God is like some cosmic killjoy that's out there just kind of going, you know what? I hate it. I really do hate it when people have a good time. So we need to throw a wet blanket, you know, over all the things that they do, that anything that smacks of pleasure or enjoyment or fun, we need to diminish that in some way. God is not trying to do that. He's not trying to diminish our joy. God is not trying to diminish our freedom. God is actually trying to honor our joy, honor our freedom. God is not trying to hurt us. He's trying to help us. And so he sends wisdom 
to our side to instruct us in the wise stewardship of this immense gift. He sends wisdom to our side to instruct us in the wise stewardship of this immense gift. So then, now just thinking about it for a second, when we think then about what are the big sort of guardrails that God puts around our sexuality that keep it healthy, that keep it flourishing, what do those guardrails look like? Are there some words that we can use to describe the Bible's vision for our sexuality? And the first word that I would use to talk about the way that the scripture talks about our sexuality is that the Bible calls us to be chaste. We're called to be chaste, which means no sexual activity outside of marriage. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18. Paul says what? Yeah, flee. Like rotten, if he's not, this isn't like, a, hey, you know, um, we have, some people have found <laughs> that it's better not to do X, Y, and Z. What does Paul say? Flee. Yeah, run in the opposite direction. Flee sexual immorality for all other sins that a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Verse 19, don't you know, I love this. Think about this. When our culture talks about sexuality and the way that it wants us to kind of celebrate it and worship all in it, but it actually degrades us, what the Bible gives us is a true honor of the human body. Flee sexual immorality, all other sins that a person commits are committed outside the bodies, but he says, don't you know that your bodies are what? Temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You don't belong to yourselves. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And when we sin sexually, we sin against our own bodies. And this, again, this whole idea of chastity is such a foreign notion to people in our culture. And a lot of people, I think, nowadays, when they think about where the sexual relationship should happen, they go, well, you know, if you're as long as, right, you're in a committed relationship is kind of the thing now. Everything is good. And the, one of the things that you'll hear sometimes in our culture is people will say, well, you know, like uh, when you're getting ready to buy a vehicle, right, you test drive the vehicle, right? <laughs> so how are you gonna know if you've got a happy sexual relationship in front of you, unless you test drive that. Or, and that is one of the biggest fallacies about our sexuality that I think takes place in our culture today. You actually don't know anything about what your sexual life married is going to be like by having sex before marriage. <laughs> you, have, you have no concept of what it's like to be married until Thank you. So it's irrelevant. And when I talk to dating couples now, and this if you're single or if you're dating, and you're wondering about like, how do I discern whether or not this person is for me? I always give dating couples three things to think about. And you think about if this is a person that you ought to spend the rest of your life with, and sex has nothing to do with this, by the way. So here we go. Here's number one. Take notes on this, okay? Number one, chemistry, all right? Do you like being around each other? Is this a person that you are attracted to? And I know that for some of you, you're looking at this and you're like, duh. But in the church, I do actually feel like there is a need to say this. Sometimes the way that we approach relationships now is like so freaking spiritual <laughs> that, that we lose sight of the obvious stuff of relationships, which is like, do, do you like this person at all? I remember talking to a gal one time. I, this was back when I was in seminary, and I hadn't seen her in a while. I think we were got Christmas break or something like that. So I hadn't seen her in six to eight weeks, and I bumped into her in the library. I said, hey, how you doing? And she goes, I'm doing great. I said, well, what's new with you? She goes, well, I'm dating. I said, that is so cool. Who's the guy? And she told me about the guy and all that. And I said, well, how's it going? She said, well, it's really so hard. She goes, but we feel like God has really called us to be in a relationship together. So we're, we're persevering, we're pressing through. And I remember, yeah. <laughs> Humbly, let me submit to you, sister. God is not calling you to be with this person. 
It should be hard later. (laughs) Plenty of time for difficult and perseverance and all of that right now, it should be a great deal of fun, okay? You should be enjoying all of it. Chemistry, do you like being around this person? Do you wanna be in the same room with them? Are you attracted to them? Is it difficult for you to keep your hands off them? That's good. Okay, you need that, it's a good, and actually practically speaking, and married people in the room, you can attest to this, it actually is important after you get married. There are so many things that you go through in your married life where at some point you have to just be able to fall back on like, can we stop talking about this convoluted complex thing right now and just like, I like you. Can we get an ice cream cone and watch Parks and Rec and just call it a night? Can we do that, okay? You need this. So chemistry, number two, character. I'm giving you three C's. I don't ever do this, but I'm getting real preachery tonight, okay? You need chemistry, you need character. Is this a person you can build a life with? The chemistry is not enough. You have gooey, gooey feelings around them and you love the cologne that they wear, whatever it is, but that's just not, you can't build a life on that. Character, this is why you date. Because you're trying to see that person in a lot of different situations. You want to see them with their families, okay? You want to see them under duress. How do they handle difficult things? Because character is what you wind up building a life together on. And so you're looking for chemistry and you're looking for character. And then the last thing I would say is that you're looking for calling. Do you, generally speaking, have the same ideas about the future that you desire together? If you've got those things, like if one person wants to be uh, in ministry in the United States and the other person wants to be a missionary in Zimbabwe, you might consider the possibility that that's a deal breaker, right? It's like, generally speaking, the horizon of life, are you going towards the same things? You, You want those things. If you've got these three things, proceed. Green light, pass go, collect $200, you know? You've got something good on your, and by the way, Sex has nothing to do with that. I didn't get enough amens on that, but it really, truly has nothing to do with that. In fact, if you start a sexual relationship at any point in that process, you know what it will actually do? It will actually obscure all of those questions. One of the things that sex does is it washes the relationship with ooey feelings, ooey, gooey, fuzzy feelings, wonderful, you know, romantic, that That's good when you're married. (laughs) You need those moments of refreshing and reset. When you're dating, that's the last thing that you need. What it does is it obscures all those important questions that you're trying to get answered and get clarity on so that you can actually figure out if you can build a life with this person. So I go back to what the Apostle Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16. Flee sexual immorality. All their sins are committed outside the body. Chastity, we're chaste, okay? We reserve the sexual relationship for marriage. The second thing I would say about the Bible's vision for our sexuality is that we are called to be monogamous, which means that we stay faithful to our spouses to the very end. Marriage is a mirror of the relationship that God has with his people. And when God brings his people close to him, he doesn't do it flippantly, does he? but he binds us to himself in the cords of covenant love that cannot be broken. And he requires that marriage be a kind of picture of that. And one of the things that happens, I think in the church and also in the culture, is that we've so romanticized what marriage is supposed to look like and feel like, that the moment we hit any kind of resistance or aggravation or frustration in our marriage, We do one of two things. We either pull the ripcord, right? And we head to divorce court. Or we think I'll be happier with somebody else and we lurch towards fidelity. And I just need to say this to you tonight also. If you're not prepared, now this is where I'm really going to encourage you tonight. If you're not prepared for long seasons of boredom, and frustration, I got a lot of longtime married people in the house that are like nodding at me tonight. Boredom and frustration and aggravation, you are not ready to be married. <laughs> it's like, this is the worst marriage talk I've ever heard. I hate this guy. 
I'm going to the XO conference tomorrow is what I'm going to do. Maybe they'll be more encouraging. You're not prepared for that. You're not prepared to be married. That honeymoon phase and all of the gooey feelings, all that stuff is going to, and then you know what you're going to be left with? You're going to be left with a human being who is incomplete and imperfect and less attractive at 6.30 on a Monday morning than they were on Saturday night in the club. You know, like you, you, you're just, you're gonna realize that and the sooner you like settle that in your soul, the better Mandy and I again are going on 21 years of being married and in 21 years we have gone through so many seasons where it was just like, <laughs> all right. We're in this and it's not as fun as it once was, but that's not a deal breaker. When God calls us into the covenant of marriage, he's not calling us to every single day as some ecstatic experience of love. That's not what he's calling us into. What he's calling us into is the lifelong practice of fidelity over an entire lifetime in which we look back on it and we realize that's what love looks like. By the way, This is why we get married. Because the marriage actually becomes this context that supports and sustains us amid all of the ebbs and flows of our passion and our affection. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it so well in a wedding homily that he put together where he said, from now on, it will not be your love that sustains the marriage, but your marriage that sustains your love. (laughs) And those... Of you in this room that have been married for any length of time, you can attest to this, can't you? That there are times and seasons that you go through. And some of you, some of you married couples, you might actually be right there in the middle of it right now, where it feels like your natural human affection has burned to ash and you have nothing left. And you know what you will discover if you persevere? That something about the marriage covenant creates a context whereby God can reach into the ashes and make a new creation. And I promise you, he will. 21 years of being married, Mandy and I have seen it over and over and over again. And we are more in love with each other now than we were when we started, even though our love has died many times over. But guess what? We're Christians. So death and resurrection is kind of our jam. So then you say, Andrew, all of this sounds very difficult. It's actually worse than that. (laughs) It's impossible, which is why you need God. (laughs) Here's Paul in Titus chapter 3. Paul says, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. And he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. What is the hope for our sexuality? It's that the Spirit is washing over us. And he's giving us, he's guiding our affections into the kingdom of God. He's making new creations out of us. Is it difficult? No, it's not difficult. It's impossible. But as we submit ourselves to the cleansing work of the Spirit, we'll find that we have the ability to be obedient to God to the very end. Can I get an amen from somebody tonight? One more story, and then I want to take us to the table. One of the things I think that sometimes that we do, and now I want to speak a word to those of you that you feel sexual brokenness, and there is a kind of degradation that's happened in your life in some way. One of the things I think that sometimes we do when we talk about and think about our sexuality in the church is that we assume that our sexuality comes to us as some pristine gift that then we have to spend all of our lives managing until we get to the kingdom of God. And I remember talking to a girl, the moment that this clicked for me where I saw it in a different light, was I talked to a girl after a service, she came down to the altar and she had tears in her eyes, clearly overcome with a lot of emotion. And she said, pastor, you need to pray for me. And I said, what are we praying for? 
And she said, I crossed the line with my boyfriend this week, and she said, I lost my purity. Ever heard that before? I lost my purity. Please pray for me. And I prayed over her. We prayed the cleansing work of the Spirit over her. But it occurred to me in that moment of praying over her and thinking about our sexuality in that space, I thought, oh, okay, so what she's done is she's thought, again, that her sexuality came to her as this pristine gift out of the heavens, and now she's messed it up in a way that, yeah, Jesus can kind of fix it a little bit, but it'll never go back to the way that it was. And it occurred to me that that's not at all the way that the Bible talks about our sexuality. When the Bible talks about our sexuality, when the Bible talks about our sanctification, guys, it's not something that we just have automatically, that based on our behavior, we can either lose or not lose. Our sexuality and our sanctification, our whole sanctification, is a gift that the Lord Jesus gives to us. It's a gift. Think about what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. He takes our sexuality and he sets it within the whole horizon of the work of God in Christ. And he says this, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing her with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. What is the Lord Jesus doing with his people right now? He's washing us and sanctifying us so that one day we're presented perfect to him. Which means tonight, if you're in a space where somebody has done something to you that's defiled you, there is purity in front of you and not behind you. And if you've done things that have defiled your own sexuality, if you'll yield that to Jesus, that very thing can actually become an occasion for the sanctification of your sexuality, a sanctification that you haven't had up to this point. And maybe you're in this space tonight and your marriage feels like it's intractably broken or you're in a space where you're addicted to pornography or whatever it is. There is purity available for you. And maybe you're in a place tonight where you haven't made any big mistakes and you've managed it well. Do you know what your call is tonight? It's to yield it to Jesus. That's what we're all called to do. And what we discover is that he washes us and sanctifies us and presents us to himself as a radiant church. Can you receive that tonight? Would you stand as we prepare our hearts for communion? Jesus, help. Jesus, help. Jesus, help. Friend, would you just take, the, the scripture calls us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. Would you now lift up your whole body, your whole life to the Lord? Some of you that are in this room tonight, you're single and you're burning with passion and it's gotten to be so difficult. Would you yield that burning with passion to Jesus? And some of you in this room tonight, things have been done to you that have left you feeling like you'll never recover, it'll never be right again. Jesus is inviting you to yield that give that to him tonight. Married people, if you're standing next to each other, whether you're on the mountaintop in your marriage or in the valley with your marriage, would you yield it to him? He can change it. And so Lord Jesus, here we are. We yield our whole selves to you. And we thank you that you are the true groom and we are your bride. And we pray that tonight the cleansing water of the spirit would wash over us wherever we're at that you would make us your bride, holy, spotless, blameless in everything. Come, let waves of renewal and waves of grace wash over us and help us tonight again, yield our whole selves to you. We're calling upon you for that. We ask all of these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. Amen, you can get your communion elements ready here to receive. And if you don't have any, could you raise your hands? We've got some folks who are walking the room to pass it out right here in the back. Thank you, Wendy. You can open up the, the bread. And Andrew just read Ephesians 5. What does Jesus do? He comes to cleanse us and to make us holy, washing us with the water of the word. As you hold the bread in your hands, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. Would you break that? Just snap that little wafer in half. 
What does Jesus do? He enters into the brokenness of the world to begin to make us whole. This is my body, and I'm perfect, and I'm whole, and I will step into the brokenness so that you can rise up into my wholeness. Jesus is here tonight to restore us to wholeness. He's here tonight to feed us. He's here tonight to cleanse us from our sins, to wash away the past. And this is precisely what has to happen. And so, Jesus, here we are. The one that is wholeness incarnate, becoming one of us and being broken so that we can be brought up into wholeness. Only you can do this, Jesus. And do we ever need it? We need it, Jesus. Would you make us whole again? In a world that has been disintegrated, would you make us whole again? Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And as often as you do this, remember, you may receive the bread tonight. On the same night, he took the cup of wine. He said, this cup is the new covenant given in my blood. And it's given for the remission of your sins. Jesus knew we would come to this moment and we would need plenty to be washed away. This does not shock Jesus. And so in this moment right now, would you just repent? Jesus, cleanse me. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, I was wrong. Jesus, I need you to do what only you can do. Jesus, help. Right now, I want you just to interact with him face to face. Most merciful God, we confess, we confess, we confess. We have sinned by what we've done and by what we've left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We're truly sorry and we humbly repent. Would you just say, I humbly repent, Lord. Now, for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. Lord Jesus, only you can heal us to the deepest places tonight. And here we are and we need what you have. This is my blood shed for you. For the remission of your sins, as often as you do this, Jesus says, Remember, saints, tonight I give you the gospel proclamation that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. If you if you'll confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's the good news. You are clean by the work of Jesus Christ. You may receive the cup. And now let's worship the Lord Jesus.
pick the tempo up just a little bit, but let's sing. Oh, come, let us adore. Come on, help us. Adore him, Christ the Lord. Come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. For he alone is worthy. Come on. For he alone is worthy. For he alone is worthy. For he alone is worthy. us to love rightly train our affections rightly and Lord tonight for my friends I pray that you would make us a people that are blazing with holiness a people that are blazing with the beauty of the Lord a people that are filled with the power of the spirit a people that know what true intimacy and true kindness and true love and true affection really looks like. Lord, teach us. Pray that you would make us a provocation to the world. That you, through us, show the world that there's a different way. So make us witnesses is what we're asking tonight. I pray tonight, Lord, bless my friends and keep them. And make your face to shine upon them and be gracious to them. Lord, lift your bright, smiling countenance upon them and grant them peace in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. Can we give God thanks for what he's done here tonight? Can we say thanks to Andrew Arndt for being with us tonight and preaching? I wanna invite our prayer team to come down because we would love to pray with any and all of you about any prayer needs you might have. And if you are new-ish, come join us at New Life Next, right through those doors out in the student chapel. We'd love to see you go from here tonight in God's grace and peace. Much love.